Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for everyone who loves the Bible. I'm Rev. Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Rosie Candlethal, PhD candidate at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia in Hebrew Bible. This week, we are bringing you preaching tips from Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. And we have a special guest scholar to discuss this text with us. Yes, we do. And I am thrilled about this guest scholar because I was assigning her work this year to my students, and I just can't wait to tell them next year that I got to talk to her. So with no further ado, Dr. Gail Yee is the Nancy W. King Professor of Biblical Studies Emerita at Episcopal Divinity School. Dr. Yee served as the president of the Society of Biblical Literature in 2019. Her contributions to feminist biblical interpretation have influenced the entire field of biblical studies, which is one of the reasons that we are so excited to talk with her today. If you're interested in more of her work, check out either Towards an Asian American Biblical Hermeneutics, an intersectional anthology, which is from 2021, or The Hebrew Bible, Feminist and Intersectional Perspectives from 2018. Dr. Gail Yee, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. Love to be here. So, Gail, we love to hear about how people find themselves in the field of biblical studies. Could you tell us a little bit about how you became a biblical scholar? Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> well, I was, um, yeah, I was an English major in college because uh, I couldn't pass a math course for my pre-med. <laughs> oh! But ev- evidently, I was very good at interpreting texts and I had a religious experience in my senior year of college and ended up, you know, in the theology department. And that in itself is a story because I was um, leading a prayer meeting at Loyola where I graduated and somebody stood up and said, you know, women shouldn't be leading uh, prayer meetings because it says so in the Bible. And of course, I've never read the Bible, okay? So I asked one of the theology professors, I says, it doesn't really say in the Bible that women shouldn't, you know, lead prayer meetings, you know, because she's a woman. And uh, the theology professor says, you need a master's in theology. So that's how I got a free MA, but it was the New Testament. So my master's and five years of the doctorate was the New Testament. But um uh, I could not get excited about the New Testament. It, w- it was kind of boring, frankly. And um, b- because I was a U.S. student, I needed to find money. So I ended up at a, uh, with a Canada Council grant on parables of Jesus. I was with classic students in Latin and Greek, and I was given the Hebrew. So reading, you know, the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, uh, uh, the Midrashim, the Talmud, Jerusalem and uh, Babylonian, the Tosefta, and all these, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls, all the Jewish literature looking for analogs to what would have been Jesus's parables. Oh, and I wow. found a lot. It was, it was amazing. But, but uh, you know, having never read the Hebrew Bible before, I was getting very enthralled in reading mm. all of this literature mm. and uh, ended up after five years of New Testament, uh, four more years in Hebrew Bible. So wow. That's, uh, 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a great story. That's amazing. I well, I gotta say, I, I totally resonate with the idea. I just find the old testament fascinating. Oh, and I yeah. I enjoy the New Testament, but it is kind of ironic. I'm a I'm a pastor and I it's hard for me to get excited about the New Testament. Uh, I love me some Jesus, but if I'm no, talking to you, know, this is a preaching thing. When I go and listen to sermons, I always get infuriated because they never do the Old Testament readings. Yes. They go straight, they preach straight to the gospel. Yes. It's, it's one of the reasons we started it is we felt felt there was a need. <laughs> There's not a better way to segue, right? <laughs> Rachel, Go like, for it. Absolutely. Uh, we're just delighted to have you uh, here with us today. And we're let's just jump into the text, right? So yeah. uh, would you read for us Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 10? And if you could also let us know which translation you'll be using. Oh, I have the NRSV in front of me. Okay. So when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Yezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Yahu for the bloodshed of Israel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Israel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will save them, not by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now when she weaned Loruhama, she conceived and bore a son, and then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can never be measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God, the people of Judah and the people of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall take possession of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Hmm. Such, you know, I, I don't think I will ever get used to Hosea. It's one of those texts that every time I come at it, I I have to kind of go through it all over again. There's just mm -hmm. There's just a lot there. But, you know, before we dive into some of that more meaty stuff, could you could you situate Hosea for us historically? Uh, when do we think it was written and why why do we assign it to that time period? Well, I'm not sure if, if you knew I did my dissertation on no, Hosea. No, no. Yes, I did my dissertation. Scored. And what I argued, what I argued in the dissertation was that it was a product of the exile. But I completely ignored my dissertation <laughs> when I was doing my book for Banished Children of Eve and doing a materialist analysis of it and 
concluded that he um, wrote during the reign of Jeroboam, who was in his last days. I argued that Hosea was uh, probably a century before the fall of Israel in 722. And I will hold to that. It gives me so much hope to hear someone being able to kind of go back over their dissertation and say, actually, maybe this. Yes, right. I mean, it's a great example. That's the thing. You know, you do change that. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Jeroboam, right? And so that that's become your more recent position, that this was at least the core of it was written during uh, during the reign of Jeroboam. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why that's important. So the there's a lot of politics and military history that kind of is within this era. What do we need to know? What do listeners need to know about the alliances between the geopolitical powers of Assyria, um, Aram, Israel, Judah? Um, and if you could, are there any modern day parallels for uh, listeners to be able to think about those geopolitical alliances that uh, Hosea is also referencing? Well, uh, Israel and Judah were in that very strategic piece of real estate, that land bridge between Mesopotamia in the east and Egypt uh, in the west. Okay, yeah. so in that fertile crescent, they were very much part of that land bridge. And everybody wanted that land <laughs> from the Hittites, uh, Moab, Damascus, Syria, Egypt. You know, they all wanted that piece of land because of the the trade values all right and it and its military strategic position okay mm-hmm. so during the time of Jeroboam who was on his last legs but anyway Israel had just defeated uh, Damascus and so Jeroboam was a- able to take back some of its territory and he had a very long and relatively prosperous reign but a prosperous reign for the elites of the kingdom, yeah. okay? The elites. But the economy on which the elite prospered, that economy was very extractive. So it took mm. a lot of the grain, wine, and oil. I mean, you hear that refrain mm-hmm. all over Hosea mm-hmm. for export. And, uh, you know, just uh, the, the oppression of the agrarian base on which the elite was built, you know, mm. uh, was deteriorating. Yeah. Then you have, you know, the military, the Syro-Ephraimite War that was probably going on at that time. There was a heavy tribute um, the Menachem had to give to uh, Assyria. And then you had a lot of internal um, conflicts. I mean, there was a lot of, during Hosea's time, there was a lot of assassinations, okay? Mm. So whether there's any modern day parallels, I mean, the U.S. had a lot of internal assassinations. I mean, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. Mm. During that time of Jose, it was a big time of strife. Mm. And I mean, you you lay out so clearly the levels of strife. It's not only Mm -hmm. external geopolitical. It's not only military. It's also linked to the land. It's economic and and it's internal. I mean, it's almost like every level. And, you know, very social. I mean, you have the classes, yeah. the elites, and you have the, the farmers, you know, so it was very conflictual. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I, that's really helpful. I've never really linked the word assassination to this, but that really just ups the ante of, of mm-hmm. political instability, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, which in some ways might help us uh make sense of the extreme nature of the 
image and relational metaphor that Hosea uses in this book to describe what's going on. I, I mean, there's a lot that's being drawn into this very small frame of marriage here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So what should we know about how prophets did their thing that might help us appreciate the complexity of this of this metaphor that Hosea is using? Is, is it worthwhile to talk about a prophetic sign act, or is there something else about the genre of prophecy that might help us um, understand what's going on here? The, the marriage metaphor is the most famous metaphor, mm. but that wasn't Hosea's only metaphor. Yeah, right. The, the structure of the book was in, in three parts. And so Hosea 1 to 3 deals with the metaphor of the marriage, and so does the, the last three chapters of Hosea. But in the middle, from 4 to uh, 11, you have what I call the youth Israel motif, mm. where the, the, the covenant is described mm. Uh, between a um, well, in in chapter eleven, it's mother or father, a mm-hmm. parent and uh, their son. Israel was a child. I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And the mm-hmm. more I called them, the more they went to the Baals. But I, you know, picked them up and carried them around and fed them. You know, it's it, it's a um, in that metaphor really climaxes the major section of the mm-hmm. Book of Hosea. Mm-hmm. Although everybody knows about the the meta- metaphor of the uh, marriage, mm-hmm. but uh, for me, the major part because it has the most chapters in it yeah. is four to eleven. So the marriage metaphor needs to be put in context with the larger book. You cannot talk about chapter one until you talk about uh, two and three. Yeah, or, frankly. But anyway. Uh, the sign act is primarily in chapter one. It's a performative prophecy. It's mm-hmm. a performative act that the prophet acts out to demonstrate in a small way what God is doing in a big way. So, mm-hmm. I mean, God commands Isaiah to walk around Jerusalem for three years naked. All right. <laughs> all right. And so, you know, this is dramatic. You know, I mean, it, it should get its point across, you know, in the first day or two. <laughs> but, you know, he's come Evidently, they didn't clue in um, for three years. Or, and jo- Jeremiah was commanded to wear this yoke yeah. on his neck to symbolize that, you know, the yoke of Babylon is going to come on Judah. So the sign act proclaims in a small way what God is going to do in a big way or mm-hmm. what is being done in a big way. Mm-hmm. And in Hosea 1, there are three of them, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, and Lo Ami. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, it's hard for us to understand today because verse 2 speaks of this woman named Gomer and calls her an Eshet Zenunim, Eshet for woman or wife, and then Zenunim of what? Is this, is this prostitution as we think of prostitution today? Is it adultery? And even if it is prostitution, in what ways was prostitution the same then as it is today? And in what ways do the two institutions diverge? A Gomer was never called a zona, which is the actual word for prostitute in the yeah. Hebrew Bible. And that construction of Eshet Zenunim, I mean, I'm, I'm um, convinced, I was convinced by Phyllis Bird about this, about that it's talking about adultery, mm-hmm. all right? And it was, it's something so reprehensible 
that it's called a wife of whoredom, mm. even though Gomer was not a prostitute. Mm. She was a wife of whoredom, all right? Mm. Because, with the, primarily because prostitution was accepted in ancient Israel, mm. all right? Even though it's a marginal, I mean, they had low status in society, but they were accepted, mm. all right? Mm-hmm. An adulterous woman would never be accepted in that society. Uh, I mean, uh-huh. uh, because, I mean, men were concerned about their lineage. They wanted to make sure that the kid that their wives had were his kids, you know, not the seed of some other guy running, you know, an adulterous woman would never be accepted in mm. that society. And mm-hmm. that's why basically adultery is primarily a female offense. I mean, mm. it becomes a male offense only if, you know, he has a sex with a virgin. All right. At which point he has to go and pay his, uh, oh. the dad some money and marry this virgin or he has sex with uh, another man's wife in which mm. he dishonors you know, uh, that other man and not himself. So, I mean, Gomer was not a prostitute. Mm. Gomer was an adulterous woman. Mm. And to marry an adulterous woman, you know, I mean, was, a, you know, a very shameful thing. That's, that's fascinating what you just said. So that Rahab, who is specifically called a Zona, yeah, yeah, right. can, be, can be redeemed but an adulterous woman cannot. And here right, today right. we've got it flipped so that adultery is seen as like almost marriage trials and tribulations that could be overcome. Mm-hmm. But to marry a prostitute would be like, what are you doing? And so the mm-hmm. the shame value has, has um, swapped between mm-hmm. the ancient times and modern times. That's fascinating. Maybe we could pull some of this discussion into the other phrase then, because we've talked about the agrarian base of this community and the social conflict that might be going on in the background with Hosea's preaching. So we have the land described as mm-hmm. the land commits great whoredom. Um, and so we're talking about yeah. adultery. How How is the land implicated in this conversation? Well, land could re- represent the nation of Israel. I mean, it's all, it's, it's whole territory and all of its inhabitants, uh, elite clergy, and even the farmers. All right. Mm-hmm. Or the land could be the means of production all right, mm-hmm. for an agrarian society uh, that have been uh, subjected to agricultural intensification for cash crops. I, I talked about the grain, mm-hmm. wine, and oil, which of course enrich the elites. All right but worsen the lands of the farmers that work the land. So in that way, the elites are committing fornication with the land. Or, I mean, we could regard it even in our own day, the land mourning Mm -hmm. because of human abuse of the land because of climate change. Mm. So the land in itself is a very uh, signifying image. I mean, you can can put seeds in the land, all right, and it'll grow. Uh, Jezreel, I mean, I think there was some place in Jezreel was seeded in the land and it grow, but then you also have uh, sexual imagery of husbands plowing their wives and mm-hmm. depositing their seed like a farmer deposits its seed into the land. So the land itself has a lot of potential for a number of different ways of thinking about uh, things mm-hmm. like, you know, um, climate change or or the means of production mm. or just re- representing the nation itself 
And and so you brought up to this name Jezreel, who's mentioned in verse four, yeah. the blood of Jezreel. I, I mean that that issue and that historical moment is completely lost to our cultural mindset. You know, yeah. nobody but biblical scholars knows what the significance of the blood of Jezreel is. And even when I come across it, it's like I have to take a minute to be like, okay, what was this again? So you know, flush it out for our potential preachers who are listening. What's the blood of Jezreel that's mentioned or referenced here in verse four? Well, Jezreel is a very, I, and the reason I know that is because I, I uh, was on an archaeological, that archaeological dig was at Tel Jezreel. All oh, right? wow. And um, Jezreel was kind of like the breadbasket <laughs> of ancient Israel. I mean, and it's beautiful. It's, I still have images of, of mm-hmm. the Valley of Jezreel. Okay. And um, people wanted that piece of land. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Yahu, of course, slaughtered the um, whole dynasty of Omri and set up his yeah. own dynasty. I mean, he threw Jezebel mm-hmm. from the from the window. And I mean, it was a lot of bloodshed in the, the annihilation of a very important king. And so it was that terrible assassination of a dynasty for this very prime piece of land. Mm. I think that's what's going on regarding that bloodshed at Jezreel. Again, bringing us back to the land, either committing zona or being forced to commit zona, mm-hmm. the sort of primary issue that God names here is going back to a bloodbath yeah. that happened both on the land and yep. for possession of the land. For the possession of it, yep. Mm-hmm. I see that we're sort of running closer on time, and I'm wondering if maybe we could ask sort of a, a broader question on just the naming of children here as, uh, you know, kind of talking about that as a symbol and the use of children in this text. We don't always see children referenced this way. Mm. Um, and we're also seeing the life of Gomer a little bit in the glimpses of each of these children. So what were the the reproductive lives of women like as we kind of see Gomer in succession having these three children? I wonder mm. if you could just get, open up the text a little bit for us on the material reality of, of women and children in childbirth. Mm. Well, maternal mortality and infant mortality was very high, very high. And the fact that Gomer popped out three kids, you know, I mean, again, again, these are Sinex. We're not sure if there was a Gomer, you know, we're not sure if there was, but this is, you know, if you go want to talk about the reality of, you know, ancient Israelite women, this was the reality, you know, Mm -hmm. that um, to have children was very difficult. It was very dangerous. And mm. um, the, these children symbolize, if they existed or not, but I mean, in the text, they're symbol, they symbolize in a small way what God is going to be doing in a big way. All right. Mm. I mean, um, as I said, Yezreel symbolized the bloody history of Israel. All right. In the annihilation, the bloody annihilation, assassination of, of the dynasty of Omri. And then you have, you know, uh, Lo Ruhama, who uh, symbolizes that God will not have pity on ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. All right. And then you have Loami, who symbolizes the severing mm-hmm. of God's special covenant, re- covenantal relationship with, with uh, Israel. Yeah. So you do have some very um, powerful symbolizations yeah. here. Yeah. But you don't hear about Gomer, except the fact that 
you know, she somehow conceived and bore a son or a daughter or Mm -hmm. another son. You Mm -hmm. don't hear much about her. She never speaks. The reality of the Hebrew Bible, and I'm glad you've mentioned it too, is that neither Israel or Judah or Gomer ever speak in the text. It's uh, There's accusations that are being made, mm-hmm. uh, characterizations of their behavior, but there's never an opportunity to respond. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of those texts that, you know, uh, I, I was guilty when I was serving as a parish pastor. Like, it was Hosea 1. I was like, not going to do that. Let's check out the psalm or the epistle or the gospel. Like, it's just there is so much here that it can feel so intimidating. At the same time, the fact that there's so much here can make it one of those texts that that really touches on places in people's lives where they're pretty desperate to hear a word spoken either to or about. Um so, I, I mean, this was a wonderful conversation about the exegesis of the text. I think we might tip now to both preaching pitfalls and preaching angles, because it, in some ways, I, f- I feel like <laughs> um, Joel Amon, a uh, professor of mine and Rosie Candethel's dear um, uh, dissertation advisor, would always say that the Bible needs a trigger warning, uh, like the whole oh. thing, and, you know, and I feel like that's kind of what I want to say to preachers about any sermon you give here, because you cannot do justice to this text in one sermon. And so before you begin preaching it, I think the first preaching pitfall that I would offer up, folks, is just the fact that you're going to have to give caveats. Whatever you say, you're going to have to give caveats about what is either being left out of your sermon or the way that you are interpreting it that, um, you know, uh, may may not be exactly what the text is doing with it. So that's the kind of the first big preaching pitfall as I've seen is preaching a simplistic sermon that does no justice to the complexity of this text. Um, but I wonder if either of the two of you see any major missteps that preachers could make here. Well, first of all, one pitfall is just forgetting that this is a story about God's covenant with Israel. I mean, so mm. I think you will have to to talk about what it means to be in a special relationship with God, Hmm. all right? And in this particular oracle, that special relationship is described in terms of a marriage, okay, which is like a marriage. It wasn't an actual marriage. Again, uh, uh, this is another pitfall, forgetting that this is metaphorical language. This is the metaphor, Mm -hmm. all right? And it's one of at least uh, two major metaphors in Hosea, yeah. all right? Uh, and th- this metaphor of marriage was is not like uh, marriage that we have in our day. I mean, one mm. of the big things why this marriage was taken up as a metaphor by Hosea is precisely because it was unequal. I mean, yeah. we think of marriage nowadays as, you know, uh, equality, you know, between the between the spouses. But the marriage in ancient Israel, that metaphor was taken up because precisely because this was an unequal relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the, you know, the metaphors that we have regarding God's covenant in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, let's say vassal Lord. OK, it's unequal. Yeah. All right, a uh, mother-child definitely yeah. unequal. 
father-son unequal. <laughs> Sometimes it's not clear who has the more power in the parent-child relationship, speaking Rosie and I as both parents of young children oh, oh, at this okay. moment. Well, nowadays, but <laughs> yeah. in that time, you Absolutely. know. <laughs> so, I mean, forgetting that it is a metaphor for the covenant, all right, and and the God Israel relationship, it's a metaphor of a marriage that is not like, you know, what we have in nowadays mm. as marriage. It's mm. right. That's great because it is really easy, I think, to draw upon the romanticized version of marriage that we carry as moderns and bring yeah. that into the text and mm-hmm. gentle it over. And that is the preaching that really troubles me about this passage where mm. it doesn't acknowledge the fact that, as you say, there are real power relations here. And in order to be able to understand the prophetic message that Hosea is delivering, we have to accept the fact that this culture recognized marriage as a relationship of unequal. Um, So maybe just saying a little bit for our preachers for that. But all that being said, there are angles here. This is a really rich text. um, And I think we would all want to hear what are some, what are some gifts that we could give our preachers and that our preachers could then give to their congregations out of Mm -hmm. this text genuinely. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, if you want to go into chapter two, see, that's where, I mean, that's why I do think, I'm not sure how you can preach on Hosea one without going into chapter two. So, I mean, that was actually going to be one of the preaching angles that I threw um, um, out there. Just playing off of what you said, Gail, was that if you're going to preach um, chapter one of Hosea, you pretty much have to preach the whole book of Hosea. I, and well, well, at least the first three chapters, yeah, you know. Well, but even as you pointed out, that that's not even the meat of of the book of Hosea. That we get stuck in that marriage metaphor when it what is trying to do is lead us to something that is actually the apex of the conversation, which is the the God refusing to react in anger right, and God refusing. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So yep. I, I think there's a way to preach this. It just would take a, a preacher who, who would be willing to spend some time in the book of Hosea. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, not everybody has that time right now, but yeah. I think it's a, it's a really rich endeavor if you've got the energy for it. I, I was drawn to what you said, Gail, as well, about how the, the prophet, just the, the very fact or the very, um, reality of the prophetic sign act is is that it instills within the prophet an urgency to proclaim God's word in a performative way and asking people what is the sense of urgency in your life that that draws you to proclaim not only like speak God's word or speak about mm-hmm. God but to perform it to live it in this embodied mm-hmm. fashion um it might be too far of a reach for some folks or some congregations, but I think that there is a a hook there that could be asking people, what is your sense of urgency about not only proclaiming God's word, but performing it? Um, I think that could be an interesting sermon. But I, but I do think, you know, I think the other thing that's potential here is to use your sermon as a lament as well. Um, you know, I'm always, I'm, you know, a Psalm scholar, so big into laments. And I think the ability to lament on behalf of those who are unnamed or unvoiced, um, women, the marginalized, um, agricultural workers, the land itself, you know, that, that itself is an opening that this text offers for preachers. If you, if you want to go to the darker side of things, (laughs) well, Dr. Gailey, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you for spending time with us in, 
exegeting this text and diving deeply into not only the historical uh, realities, but the modern resonances of it. This has just been a really rich conversation, so thank you. Okay. Oh, my pleasure. Remember, folks, uh, you can find more of these great conversations at firstreadingpodcast.com. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast fix. You can find our merch page and a PayPal donation button on our website. Thanks to Tim Nickdinch and Blue Dot Sessions for the music for this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethal. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. Happy preaching.